Listener, before the episode starts, Obscura is supported by listeners like you. To get access to the six bonus episodes you aren't getting on the main feed, head to patreon.com slash Obscura Crime Podcast. That's three times the content you're getting on the free feed each month. And by supporting the show, you allow me to continue to supply you with the content you love. Even a single dollar is enough. If 10% of listeners were to commit to just one dollar, it would allow me to effectively double the amount of content I can put out. That would mean double the free episodes on the free feed and double the Patreon on episodes. Again, to get access to six bonus episodes you aren't getting on the free feed, head to patreon.com slash Podcast. Thank you for listening, and let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. If this were a Hollywood movie, the story of Gary Ridgway would build to an explosive climax. Considering the path he took, the events the unfolded, and the continued escalation, I wouldn't blame you for thinking that. The end of a serial killer's life of violence is often as dull as any other crime. A knock may come at the killer in question's door. They may be interrupted at their workplace, asked to come downtown. There are exceptions, of course. Richard Ramirez and Ted Bundy both had captured fit for the silver screen, not Gary. No, Gary's arrest, after a life of violent thrashing, came during a period of relative inactivity. The key moment of Gary's downfall occurred on November 16, 2001. The old feelings were back. Yes, on that day, Gary couldn't control his urges. He loved Judith. But on the rare occasion, he had to quench the thirst inside. The other Gary that lived inside him thrashing about... This was an occasion when he requested extra money from Judith. She gave him the cash and Gary left searching for a sex worker. He drove off on a cold and wet November day. Gary settled on a young woman that caught his eye. Pulling up to the curb, he flashed the woman his cash. She asked what Gary wanted to buy. Gary told her and was subsequently arrested. Still, Gary went home that day. DNA samples were subjected to analysis. It uncovered the boogeyman in their midst. Imagine the crushing realization from investigators that they had his DNA samples since 1987. A search warrant was issued, and on November 30th, 2001, the police arrested Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, who still worked at the Kenworth Truck Factory. You went to a lot of, uh, of work to create these ruses. And it sounds to me like you had a series of, of ruses that you had kind of in your hip pocket. 
mm-hmm. that you would you would bring out and you would use to make you appear normal to some of these women. Mm-hmm. Um, and there had to be a way of you deciding, even though it was just like that, uh, which ruse would work with which woman. I mean, you had to have a way of feeling them out and um, saying, I think ruse number one, two, three will work with this woman. How, how, tell me, explain that process to me. Well, one of them was, as, you, as I, they would, a uh, woman would get in the car. She's already in she's the car? She's in the car. Let's say she's always in the car, driving down the road. And she first she wants to see my ID. So I whipped out my ID, and with my ID would be my, I'd put my finger over my driver's license to hide my name. Mm-hmm. But on the opposite side was um, pictures, and a picture of my son. to see my son and they would know I was a probably normal person. But you were really using your son as part of your roost. There's only, uh, at the time I didn't want to picture my ex-wife there, so I had a picture of my son. Sure, you had, to, you, you had to make it sound good. I had a driver's license on one side, my ID, and then when I showed my, and then the next, next picture was with my son, so that was, and, uh, in the vehicle, I had some, uh, always had some, not always, but had some of my son's stuff in there, you know, um, that he left in there, or some Star Wars or something like that. And you know, so there was, it was uh, like a family setting. In your, every, in your vehicle? Yeah, so every time I opened up my wallet, there would be a picture of my son on one side, uh, you know, behind my, here's my idea, I hide my name. Flip it over, and there's my ID and my uh, sense picture on the back side, and they'd see that, and that would uh, lower any big defenses. Mm-hmm. And you know, kids' toys, eight-year-old toys on the on the dash. The only thing that would be better than that would be to have your son in the car with you. That that would be a, a, a incredible ruse. Uh, that happened once. What happened? Uh, I, it was uh, July 18th, I think it was my brother's birthday. That weekend I picked up uh, a woman on back, back highway, and Matthew was next to me in the seat, and she hopped in, and and I took her over to uh, in the south, south airport area, and... Um, took her uh, into an area and uh, my son was there and I, I killed her. I'm real sure my son didn't see it, but that only happened one time. But that was a pretty good, pretty good ruse. Mm-hmm. So why didn't you do it again? Well, well for one thing, the um, I didn't want my son to see it, see that happen again, because I was, I was, uh, that's when I was really um, killing a lot of them, mm-hmm. and 
another thing it never came to an opportunity again to do it I didn't I mean uh, I had him in my truck one time he was sleeping and I picked up another prostitute that I didn't date her after the initial search of his lockers in 1987, a common nickname for Gary around the factory was Green River Gary. Investigators linked Gary to the murder of four women. Shortly after, three more victims were added to the list. This after microscopic spray paint spheres were identified as a specific brand of paint used at Kenworth. November 5th, 2003, after two years of proclaiming his innocence, Gary Ridgway pleads guilty to the murder of 48 victims. In exchange, he will not receive the death penalty. During those years, his family stood by him, but as more evidence came to light, those family members ceased contact, and in a crushing blow, even Judith separated from him. I was in shock that day when I heard someone driving up in the driveway, and it's... I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it, but it has happened. Oh, it was like a brick wall dropped in front of me and didn't know what to do. Everything stopped. He made me feel like a newlywed every day. What I miss the most is the love that I had in our life. And he was the best to me anyway. Gary received life without parole. At his sentencing, the families of the victims were invited to speak. The family understandably infuriated with the monster that stood before them. 1982, through August 11th, 1983, with premeditated intent to cause her death, I strangled Shonda L. Summers to death. I picked her up, planning to kill her. After killing her, I left her body near the northern boundary of SeaTac Airport. Is that your statement? Yes, it is. Is it true? Yes. Count 23 of the information charges you with the aggravated murder of Cheryl L. Wims. Your statement about the murder of Ms. Wims is as follows. In King County, Washington, on or about May 23rd, 1983, with premeditated intent to cause her death, I strangled Cheryl L. Wims to death. I picked her up, planning to kill her. After killing her, I placed her body near the northern boundary of SeaTac Airport. Is that your statement? Yes, it is. Is it true? Yes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And so the list goes on and on. The many women that fell victim to the Green River Killer read in a monotony. A list so long it's read for 40 minutes. It is believed by some investigators that Gary Ridgway killed over 90 women. He was convicted for 49. Mr. Ridgway, I'm going to ask you at this time 
how do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count one for the death of Wendy Lee Caulfield? Guilty. Mr. Ridgway, how do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count two for the death of Deborah Bonner? Guilty. Mr. Ridgway, how do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count three for the death of Marsha Chapman? Guilty. How do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count four for the death of Cynthia Hines? Guilty. How do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count five for the death of Opal Mills? Guilty. How do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count six for the death of Deborah Estes? Guilty. How do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count seven for the death of Carol Christensen? It's worth taking a moment to appreciate Judge Richard A. Jones. He presided over the trial with a compassionate, firm, yet fair presence. He later spoke on his experience during the trial. I'm going to play some interview audio for you now. They come up and they say the victim family member's name, the count number, and then they go on to say thank you for the words that have been expressed because it restored their dignity and made them seem like human beings. And one of the most profound statements that she made was, I have traveled through anger and walked down the long path to forgiveness. Every bit of that journey was allowed in your courtroom. Thank you. People that I work with would come up and ask me specific questions point blank about where was Gary Ridgway? Was Gary Ridgway gonna plead guilty? And it was on a nonstop basis. Specifically told my family not to ask me questions about the Ridgway case. The reason I had Mr. Ridgway turn around was to make sure that he had a chance to see visually what the impact was and have an impression upon his mind as he went down into a cell and to keep that with him for the balance of his life. Give some level of decency to the loss of life. It wasn't just mere prostitutes who had died. These were young women who had been misguided at the point in time, who had misdirection. Now I'm not asking them or telling them to anybody that they have to go out and tell Gary Ridgway, I forgive you because that's extraordinarily difficult under those circumstances. But when they hear it from the bench, because those folks looking at their faces, I can tell you, they were desperately, desperately looking for words of direction of where they go from that point in time. I think one of the things that people come to courts looking for are answers. And merely because you come to court doesn't mean that you'll have an answer. A decision will be made but it may not be the answer. In this particular case, a decision was made for Gary Ridgway, but we don't have answers about Mr. Ridgway. Of the victim's statements, there are too many to read here for you today. His victims so numerous that the victim impact statements went on for hours. But I will read from you two that stood out to me as particularly poignant. Garrett Mills, brother of victim Opal Mills, had this to say. This is from my journal I wrote a while ago. I spent the weekend trying to face the past. I drove by the homes where Opal and I grew up, and I walked in the parks where we used to play. Then I went to our old elementary school, where I remembered her chubby little face, so proud of her hair bear lunchbox, proud to be a big girl in kindergarten on the first day of school. 
I walked along the same route we took to school. This is where I had promised her I would never leave her, and I would never let anyone hurt her. I scooped up the dirt with my hands and left a rose at the same swing set where we used to sit and dream about our future. Little Opal talked about the children she would have someday, innocently claiming they would all be happy. She talked about being rich someday so she could take care of our mother and buying her a big house. She said her son and daughter would also be named Garrett and Opal, and they would be as close as we were. We would all live together in our huge houses she would buy, and we'd watch cartoons and stay up as late as we wanted to. Even at age seven, she seemed to care more about others than she did herself. I then drove down to the Green River. I hadn't been there in over 20 years. It felt strange seeing the change. There were two fishermen standing on the bank where Opal was found. Families and couples in love were walking, laughing, being happy, perhaps talking about their big dreams and their future plans. Amidst all of this, I couldn't help it. I sat on the bank and cried. I cried about what Opal went through while alive and about her unfulfilled dreams. I cried for my mother who never got to see her baby girl grow up. I cried for my own young daughter, worried about her future in this scary world. Mostly I cried about letting Opal down when she needed me most and breaking my promise never to let anyone hurt her. Sarah King, daughter of victim Carol Christensen, spoke. Never in a million years did I think I would be standing up here facing the man that killed my mother. I was only five when my mother died and when my dad told me that she was never coming home. The one thing that I want you, Gary Ridgway, to know, I was that daughter at home. I was that daughter at home, waiting for my mom to come home. And I've had to grow up for the last 20 years. And this has been my life. I grew up, I've had to defend my mother. She wasn't a prostitute, she was a mother, she was a wife, she was a sister. And we miss her. I truly think you are a coward. You have useless excuses for what you have done and no remorse. And I'm glad that I have family that's going to be here for me. My family is here and I have them. You don't have anybody. You're going to wake up every day alone. And one day, you will miss the life that you had because it's over now. One day, you will miss your family like we miss ours. And no matter what you say, I will never, ever, ever forgive you. I will never forgive you. People have places to go when they die. And your place is waiting for you. I'm glad you didn't get death. Because death is too good for you. Death is too peaceful for you. And you will die someday. And you will go to that place and you will get what you deserve. Gary sat without expressions through most of it. In a now much publicized moment, the father of one of the victims forgives Gary for what he's done. Mr. Ridgway, um, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and it is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. Gary immediately breaks down and cries. He is distraught through the rest of the sentence, even when he is given his moment to speak. I killed the 48 women listed in the state's second amended information. In most cases, when I murdered these women, I did not know their names. Most of the time I killed them the first time I met them and I do not have a good memory for their faces. 
I killed so many women I have a hard time keeping them straight. I have reviewed information and discovery about each of the murders with my attorneys. And I am positive that I killed each one of the women charged in the second amended information. I killed them all in King County. I killed most of them in my house near Military Road. And I killed a lot of them in my truck, not far from where I picked them up. I killed some of them outside. I remember leaving each woman's body in the place where she was found. I have discussed with my attorneys the common scheme or plan, aggravating circumstance charged in all these murders. I agree that each of the murders I committed was part of a common scheme or plan. The plan was, I wanted to kill as many women I thought were prostitutes as I possibly could. I picked prostitutes as my victims because I hate most prostitutes and I did not want to pay them for sex. I also picked prostitutes as victims because they were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would not be reported missing right away and might never be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. Another part of my plan was where I put the bodies of these women. Most of the time I took the women's jewelry and their clothes to get rid of any evidence and make them harder to identify. I placed most of the bodies in groups, which I call clusters. I did this because I wanted to keep track of all the women I killed. I like to drive by the clusters around the county and think about the women I placed there. I usually used a landmark to remember a cluster and the women I placed there. Sometimes I killed and dumped a woman, intending to start a new cluster, and never returned because I thought I might get caught putting more women there. I'm sorry for killing all those young ladies. Many don't know what to make of this. Some believe Gary's shell cracked by an act of kindness. Others believe it was a display of a manipulative sociopath. In 2011, Gary pleaded guilty to the 49th victim. Frequently, he's taken on what many describe as his field trips to find his victims' bodies. On few occasions, these trips are successful. On most bodies aren't found. It's believed by some, including myself, that Gary sometimes fabricates location to enjoy a long day spent in the wilderness. If you recall, Gary was an outdoorsman past tense, was. Now he spends his days rotting behind bars. So, when on these trips, the brief excursions from the hell he's earned himself, Gary can hardly contain his excitement. He's giddy. And when a body does turn up, often prideful of the findings, you can see the enjoyment reflected in his face. To this day, Gary requests these field trips, all under the guise of wanting to help find more bodies for the victims' families. I'm critical of motivation. I feel it's more likely that he's scratching an old itch, tasting freedom. Investigators are torn between making an attempt to find the bodies and just letting Gary rot. There's no easy answer here. I enjoyed looking out the window at her when she wasn't watching. Did your mom enjoy that? She didn't even know I was there, no. She was down just doing, just sunbathing and then she'd turn over and before she turned over, she always fastened her bra and uh, turned over and maybe a little bit up here to show because she no tan marks. And I, uh, I, I stared and looked out all the time. And had your fantasies? I had a fantasy, yes. 
It makes sense to me. It makes sense that you would have a fantasy. Mm -hmm. Need to have you tell me what that, at that, what that was. Just a fantasy of wanting to uh, have sex, touch her, feel her body, um, have her show me how to have sex. Because um, your mother's teaching a lot of things, you know. It's just, it's just a fantasy. Something she wouldn't do it, but it's. What would in your fantasy? What would your mom have you do to her? Have me do to her. Uh, my fantasy would be to. Uh, and explore to uh, find the different things what a woman has, uh, uh, girls have that guys don't have. Show me how to have sex, good sex. Uh, what, you know, what, what the woman wants and uh, feel every bit of her body to, to uh, enjoy a, a woman and have sex with her. But at the same time in your life, and listen carefully to this, mm -hmm. um, at the same time in your life, you also hate your mom for what she's doing to you. Yes. So how are those thoughts and fantasies colliding together? Because we know that that happens. Mm -hmm. um, how are they colliding together in your head? And gliding together in my head when, there, when she was just laying down there, she wasn't. She was more of a sex object than a than a mother, and more of the fantasies of having sex with her and nothing to have and to kill her. Two different uh, things. When she was always she got Doctor Jekyll Hyde. When she's down there, she's a sex fantasy, sex object. When she's up there uh, trying to get me to read, and she's uh, uh, the other side of uh, uh, something, uh, something I hated. I loved the part of her being a sex object, but I didn't like the part of her being the mother and uh, working with me is trying to help me in reading and and. I like the sex part better than I like the the mother that was always trying to hurt, uh, belittle me, and because uh, I wasn't. Uh... A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, "Is it Renee?" And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? 
American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. One has to wonder, listening to Gary describe his sexual fantasies of his mother, if this was a root cause for his desire to kill sex workers. The way that he described how he liked when his mother was sunbathing under the sun. Incapacitated, not a threat. Serial killer Edmund Kemper once confessed that after he killed his mother, the drive to kill was gone that he had found his white whale. No one can know what actually tumbles around in the brain of Gary Ridgway. Well, no one but Gary, that is. But I can't help but wonder if, when Gary killed all those sex workers, was he really killing his mother over and over? She was a big problem I had. I mean, I, there is, um, Dad wasn't around that much. He was working all the time, and she was the one that was in control, and she was constantly trying to get me to uh, do better in school, and and uh, I just couldn't do better. I wanted to have her stop, and the only way was to to kill her, to hurt her bad. Um, angry and. Uh, her for uh, pushing and pushing and pushing on me to to remember, and I just couldn't remember, and I just wanted her to stop. In my head, I, uh, I don't know what I would do. I just, just, um, just wanted her to stop. One time there, they were going to put me in a, a a special school. I didn't want that. My dad and my mom were arguing about it all the time. And it was uh, for retarded people, and I didn't, wasn't retarded, I think. So I was mad at them for wanting to put me away from other kids. Now you're crying as you remember that. Why are you crying? Because I didn't want to go. And wanting to hurt her, and uh, hurt her bad. During, during that thing, I usually took it out on uh, 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 other things instead of hurting her. Uh, Living things, killing, killing animals, killing animals. 
Um, I stabbed a kid one time. Stabbed a kid with a knife. Down by uh, Chinook, where I used to go to school. And uh, boy was playing. I stabbed him in the side. And I didn't kill him. And um, I think it must have been about sixth grade, I think it was seventh grade. And I, I uh, that was at the same time I was you know, breaking out windows, throwing, throwing rocks at windows. But that's what I took my aggression on. I couldn't take it on my mom. I had to take it on my animals. And online. I killed a lot of birds, but uh, one cat suffocated in an uh, ice chest. And uh, shot uh, babies at uh, dogs to hurt them. And, In 2015, Gary Ridgway moved from Washington to Colorado to end his solitary confinement. Due to his notoriety, previously he spent his prison sentence in total isolation. In Colorado, he was set to be placed in general population. After public outcry, he was moved back to Washington. In recent years, Ridgway has complained of mental health issues and has been placed on medication. Dave Reichert, a man who spent time as a member of the Green River Task Force, built an entire career off the backs of the victims in this case. If you spend enough time researching Gary Ridgway, the case, and the Green River Task Force, you will likely come to the same conclusion. Dave Reichert is a career opportunist who inflates his role in capturing Gary Ridgway. Many people, me included, believe that Gary would have been caught long before 2001, but the Green River Task Force and Dave Reichert dropped the ball again and again. An entire episode could be devoted to Reichert's bumbling investigation, his inflated ego, and his theatrical grandstanding. But that would be pointless now. What's done is done. Though I'm happy to tell you, listener, don't fall for the grifter's shtick. But you can find Dave Reichert all over documentaries explaining his expert strategies for capturing and interrogating Gary Ridgway. Dave worked his way up to becoming a congressman off the back of large claims he's made over the years, he even wrote a book about his experiences. If you want some food for thought, five days before election time, a search for more bodies was orchestrated. Interesting timing. Dave Reichert should be remembered as the lying politician he is and will likely remain until the day he dies. As for Gary Ridgway, what is there to say? A near illiterate sociopath that snuffed out the lives of many. He killed sex workers because he deemed them a sort of freebie. Listener, no matter your religious beliefs, it's worth noting that Ridgway is a devout Christian. If there is an afterlife, Gary will spend it burning in hell. <laughs>